For me, I've learned something. There is salt and there is salt. All right, there's something I love my salty food. I've got a, a bit of a, a, I've got a sweet tooth and I like extreme tastes of things. And I like spicy food. I like really sweet food. I like, I like curries. I love really rich, decadent sweets. I've been, I'm a bit weird like that. Um, well, not weird. I'm just, I'm just human. But I do like my salty stuff. So I want you to, I, I'm gonna, we're going to do something here, right? First up, this is just your garden variety table salt. Probably the stuff that comes from Geelong, all right, because nothing good comes out of Geelong except salt. Um, <laughs> any footy player, footy, <laughs> Geelong, I'm thinking of footy, footy only, footy only, all right, and you only heard football. Now, all right, so why don't you try, you got a teaspoon, he, he knew this was coming. All right, let's, let's, all right, so we got that gear, right, that's just your basic, stick that, you stick that on your tongue, all right, all right, so that's a... That's a bit of a strong salty taste, right? All right, yeah. <laughs> You're going to need a big bucket of water after that. Geelong written all over it. There's a big salt, there is a big salt plane out there. That's why a lot of salt comes from Geelong. That's, there's context there. <laughs> okay, all right. But it's, it's salt. It's just, you're used to hearing, you know, you've had salt in your food before. Nothing, nothing over the top, just... It was just a larger concentrate. Right. All right. Here, let me try this one then. All right. I, I love food markets. Who likes food markets? All right. In the Mount, there's nowhere near the food markets I'm used to. All right. So if you can point us to somewhere where we can go and actually enjoy some gourmet markets, um, please let me know. Uh, we heard about the Nelson one. Go down there and it's like six stalls. So this stuff I got from a place called Oxley. All right. This is... Smokehouse salt. This is salt that has been smoked, and it's like this. And uh, and you know, give that a go. Tell me if it, tell me the difference. There's a bit of curry in it. Very salty. I'll put a little bit less on there because I. There's more flavorism in there. Yeah, exactly. Oh, gee, the food critic is working. <laughs> You're right, okay. It's, um, you know, get, a, get a smell of that. Like, you can even smell it through the packet. It's like... It's <laughs> All it is, it's, just, it's actually stuff that you get. That's the, the guy, when he sold it to us, just said, less is more. So instead of just piling up an inch of salt over your eggs... You know, you do your smashed avocado, you do your eggs on top and a bit of sourdough and you put about half a dozen granules of this stuff on top and it just gives the whole dish a kick. It's really cool. All right? But it's noticeably different, isn't it? Great. Thank you very much. Let's give him a hand. All right? That's all I wanted to do. But better get some water in your system after that one. (laughs) I'll come back to that in a minute. We are in our series, which is titled Kingdom Mandates from the Mount. And the opening slide will get up there now. And we are looking today at the last of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 and looking at some other ideas here today as well. Last week, Peter looked at what it meant to be a peacemaker. And I found that to be a very profound time. That, was a, that, was, that, was, that really uh, uh, got the thinking, the grey matter going. I, I loved hearing how, how he processed that idea. Jesus himself was a peacemaker. And this involved a war 
against the powers of the world. Okay? There was a war to bring peace in the ministry of Christ. The temptation account shows that he actually had the option to merely keep the peace. But his responses in that time indicate an active decision to make peace, not just keep it. There is a big difference between keeping peace and making peace. How many know that? All right. Keeping peace is kind of just letting everything just sort of don't, don't, don't ruffle anything. Whereas making peace, unfortunately, takes a confrontational approach at times to do that. Peacemaking is a big part of the ministry of those who would want to be considered in the kingdom. Kingdom people are peacemakers. And uh, that's just worth noting and worth exploring and considering. Today, the last beatitude is in Matthew 5, verse 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are the persecuted. Now we remember that Jesus is speaking to a very Jewish audience at this time. And the Jews knew a little bit about persecution. The invading forces of the last few centuries had brought some horrific things. They dominated them as a people. They had mocked their God. One example is in 170 BC. Antiochus Epiphanes besieged the nations and he offered a pig to his own God Jupiter in the Jerusalem temple. Awful stuff taking place, making an absolute mockery, not just of their political status, but their religious way as well. There was many oppressive, persecuted years in their history. So when he says, blessed are the persecuted, they're kind of, you know, oh man, we, we could use a bit of blessing right now. But then he actually makes that a little bit more, puts an extra caveat on that. It isn't about invading forces or Israel's political or social causes. It is instead marked by one's pursuit of the kingdom of God and its righteousness and more importantly for these Jewish disciples one's personal identification and allegiance to a new king named Christ. Jesus was making himself a reason for persecution. And early in his ministry, he is calling his followers to lay down their lives for him and his kingdom rule. He's only been in ministry a year. Matthew's account delivers this with a double whammy. First up, he starts with, blessed are they. This conveys the idea to a whole group of people, both there and beyond. But then it's repeated, blessed are you as well when you go through those things. This was personal to those who would hear and read his words. And it was part and parcel with the character traits 
of what being a Christian is all about. The Beatitudes were to be embraced in their entirety. And being a persecuted Christian would be considered every bit as normal as being meek, merciful or righteous. Jesus showed us through his ministry that peacemaking would not end all hostility. As we engage with the world and with Scripture, we see that both hostility is, is, is still has not ended. We know that. Scripture is clear that we would always be living in a way that aims to make peace, but peace will not always want to be made. A kingdom follower who embraces all the Beatitudes as their own is going to yield a life of real integrity, and this renders us blessed before God. But it will come at a cost. There is a downside to that because it does increase the hostility of the ungodly world around us. Scripture points to the world hating a righteous lifestyle seen in others. One writer said that, in, that, that persecution is the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. Neither of them can be reconciled together. The, the ethos of the world and the way of the kingdom cannot be reconciled. They are chalk and cheese. They will be at conflict. There is enmity. The carnal mind is at enmity with God. We also need to remember that Jesus was also aware that his own people would be part of the offended. In Luke 11, he makes a point about the way the Jews had acted in the past. He says, Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom says, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. That's a pretty big statement. If you read Hebrews 11 and you read the full chapter you'll get an idea of how God's chosen people had actually treated some of God's chosen servants. It's not very pretty. It was always prophetically known that the righteous standard that Jesus brought would be rejected and he would be persecuted. Psalm 118 gives the well-known verse that Jesus himself quotes and Peter refers to it as well. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So the one that everything is referenced off first is rejected. Jesus was fully aware of what his disciples would be following him into. In John 15, we read these words, If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, servants are not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Great promises, isn't it? 
John reiterates that idea to the church in Ephesus when he writes his first epistle. He says, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. When we study church history, we see a long list of, of persecuted saints along the way. Once it became clear that Christianity and Judaism were separate entities, the Roman Empire began to look at Christianity with greater scrutiny. The pressure to give honour to Caesar suddenly increased. And Christians were labelled all sorts of things in that early stage of their faith form, that, that church formation. They were labelled atheists. They were labelled cannibals. They were labelled oh, all sorts of things. They were accused of incest and all sorts of stuff because they didn't understand the vocabulary of Christianity. I mean, imagine how we talk about being washed in the blood and all that sort of stuff today. Those guys didn't even, they went, they had even a harder time again. Today, persecution in the East is really strong. Although the the Chinese church is probably one of the biggest churches in the world, that has come at a significant cost. Other nations are doing it even tougher than they are right now. In North Korea, people are are taken to stadiums and machine gunned down in front of people. They're accused of of holding terrible things, accused of terrible things, of false accusations. They were found with pages of a Bible and they're actually being told that they're holding adult entertainment material in their hands. And that's the charge laid against them and they're, they're killed for it. Martin Luther considered suffering and persecution to be key ingredients of a true true church. One of his earlier writings included a definition of the church as this, the community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. That's how he described the church. A few centuries later in that same part of the world, we had Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said that suffering is the badge of true discipleship. And I don't, know, I don't know if you know his story, but I think he was pretty qualified to be able to say that. He also goes down in history for this phrase, for this quote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Persecution is very real. And then we go, well, how am I supposed to respond to that? How do I react to the persecution around me? How does Jesus want me to respond to that? Throughout Facebook during the Trump campaign, I was following a lot of American Christians. A few Christian pastors who are going and singing you know, the praises of either candidate. And one person particularly was a big Trump supporter. And so he, he does this big, long Facebook post saying why he's going to do that, why he's going to vote Trump. Pretty much telling his whole church of 5,000 people to follow suit. And... Someone in the comments goes, we need a real hero in, the par- in, 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 in power now as our presidency. Christians have been treated as second-class citizens for far too long. These are people in Dallas where you've got three million people and one million people go to church every week. And I'm going, second-class citizens? How so? We've got some interesting perceptions to persecution in that setting. I wonder how the first century Christians would respond to that. How do we respond 
for persecution. Well, Jesus says rejoice. In Matthew, the statement from Jesus is to rejoice and be glad when it comes. Rejoice in the Greek is a joyful form of salutation. It's a greeting. Being glad means to be abundantly jubilant. But in particular, this word appeals to the spiritual makeup of a person. It actually means to be spiritually joyful and glad. So something deep within. The Spirit empowers us to feel that way. And because we are in the kingdom, the kingdom of God is the unhindered, ungrieved presence of the Holy Spirit. We're empowered to be that way. Luke's version of the event actually adds another word which we translate to physically leap for joy. Rejoice and leap for joy. Between the two accounts, we see a full picture of the sort of response Jesus is talking of here. If we want to remain in a blessed, happy, enviable state, then the appropriate response to persecution comes looks a bit like this. First up, we greet it head on with an excellent and joyful composure. We let our spirit become settled with it because our joy is not to be gained from the pleasures of the world but in knowing Jesus. And persecution puts a line in the sand. Our pursuit of righteousness will cause a separation between us and the world. Unfortunately, that's the way it is. But we can go to a place where our joy is found in God rather than the world. We don't need the world. We're supposed to influence the world. We're supposed to change the world. We're supposed to see God's kingdom be announced and demonstrated to the world. But we actually don't need the world to sustain our personal joy. We deal with persecution by finding that spiritual sense of gladness that comes from the Spirit. And then that comes out in our physical response. That leap for joy element that Luke speaks of. In other words, we're not to let it get down, not, we don't let it get us down in both our spirit and our behavior. That's how the apostles took it. In Acts, when they were beginning to get some hassles, they were embracing that mindset. There was a mob called the Sanhedrin. They were starting the thing off there, calling them in, giving them a beating, giving them a warning. Don't speak again in the name of Jesus. And what's it say there in Acts 5? They left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. That's pretty cool. Some years later, Revelation 2, there's a church in a, in a place called Smyrna. It, they are a poverty-stricken church, despite the wealth of a city around them. They've been rejected from work and trade unions because they've, been re, they've refused to embrace the gods and the idolatry that comes with that. They were subject to significant persecution and hardship, but Jesus calls them spiritually rich because of their righteous stand. Typical of that church was its legendary bishop, Polycarp. 156 AD, he was arrested and tried on account of his faith. He was a man of significant integrity and the city knew of this very, very well. All the Beatitudes on display. At his trial, when he's tied up, ready to be burned at the stake, 
the governor of that city comes up and actually implores him, begs him to come up and, and actually renounce his faith. They thought so highly of him that they didn't want to see the guy die. But they had to actually make a stand with the whole pagan system. And, and he's gone, just renounce your faith so we can get you down there. He actually has a very, very, very famous phrase. For 86 years I served him. And he has never done me wrong. How can I now blaspheme my King and my Saviour? When, when they set the light, a wind came through the place and separated the flames. So he actually didn't die from being burnt. He actually died because a soldier put a spear in him. Jesus gives us a couple of reasons we can rejoice in those times. First up, as we see in the lives of the apostles and now with Polycarp, it's actually a certificate of godly authenticity in front of God and in front of the world. Jesus describes this certificate of authenticity for disciples this way, in the same way they treated the prophets who were before you. See, all through the ages, there was a consistent mark of persecution against the righteous pursuit of God. So Jesus is saying here, all those who are persecuted from then even to now are actually in rather good company. See, if he seeks peace with God and seek his righteousness, it will come at the expense of the approval of the world. And your proof of righteousness will be your ability to stand when the hostility of the world comes your way. Men like Polycarp, who were publicly martyred, actually influenced other men to repent and step into the void. He's out there going, I can't blaspheme my Lord and King. And that captured the imagination of a fellow named Justin Martyr, a Samaritan who found faith and became a leader in actually explaining the Christian faith and all those misunderstandings to Roman authorities before he was martyred himself. Another reason for rejoicing is that persecution comes from true identification with Christ. You know what, I hear this so often from church folk. Sometimes I'm just not confident I'm actually following Jesus the way I should. Just don't know if I'm in that right place. Sometimes that becomes bogged down after they've gotten bogged down with an issue in their life. There's been a habit they can't break or there's been something that has gone wrong or there's a failure clear on their mind and they're going, I just don't know if I can cut it. I don't know if I've got what it takes. Every believer, let me guarantee you this, every believer is in at least one state of repair along the way. Every single believer has scratches and dings on it. We are all in states of repair when it comes to our faith and getting that right before God. We are all on a growth curve. We're all just getting, moving along and getting as good as we can with this. There will be trace elements of iniquity within us all. 
absolute 100% purity this side of an eternity is going to be a very difficult thing to achieve. We are only who we are because of the Spirit, not because of what we bring to the table. But a good clincher to ask. And when I ask people about this, despite their failings, they still can eyeball me and go, that I can do. How serious do we take our faith in this public sphere? Do we shrivel away when people start hammering religious things or do we stand up and identify with Christ in that arena? No matter how much someone feels they've failed, taking a public stand somehow seems to go, you know what, I can do that. Cool, that's identification with Christ. At baptism, Jesus identified with the spiritual emptiness and need of men. At temptation, Jesus identified with the passions that distract man away from the things of God. At the cross, Jesus identified with our sin, made to become sin so that true spiritual reconciliation could occur. And then he calls us to identify with him with his ministry, his character, his kingdom and his suffering. When we face persecution, we are in good company with the prophets and the cloud of witnesses since. We are identifying with Jesus in the greatest way. Probably want to close that door. I have got a Simpsons flashback right now. Joy, 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 dead in my heart. Where? Anyway. <laughs> the same promise made to the poor in spirit is made to the persecuted. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As R.T. Kendall puts it, he goes... The same promise made when you first come to faith, when you first come to that point of your, that poverty of spirit, that moment where you go, I'm going to get into the kingdom. Then you go through, you take all these other traits on, you learn how to become more of a kingdom person. And at the end of it, when persecution comes your way, the same promise comes at the end. Yours is the kingdom. Did Jesus run out of ideas or is there something a bit more to that? Well, short answer, the kingdom is as good as it gets. There is nothing great, no greater promise than yours is the kingdom. Unless you're waiting for something greater, I can't think of anything. When God said, when Jesus says, yours is the kingdom, that is enough. Self-poverty starts... What standing in persecution completes in the development of Christian character. We empty ourselves and we begin to pursue what Jesus has for us. We fill up with God and as we do that, our own little kingdoms, all those things, our agendas, our motives, our purposes, all these diminish and they make way for a greater kingdom and its purposes. With each blessed trait we embrace, our own kingdom drops and God's kingdom prevails. 
when we got saved, a new kingdom showed up in our horizon. And as we grow deeper and deeper in our faith, as we take on these other things, as we become more merciful, as we become more meek, as we, become, as we pursue righteousness in all its expressions, the kingdom looms larger and all the peripheral things start to fall away. Eventually, the ability to endure persecution is proof that we've made the God-placed kingdom the sole purpose of our life. If we were eyeballed and said, renounce your faith or die, and we go, nah, just bring it on, there can only be one kingdom in our sights, right? And once we're in that place, only one thing remains in our sights. Only one inheritance matters. Only one sovereign takes reign. Only one destination is desired. The kingdom of heaven. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, I'm poor, but many have become spiritually rich before, because of me. I've got nothing on earth as we currently know it, but still have everything to look forward to. In Philippians, he writes, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. I even dis- disregarded all as garbage because of all that matters is gaining Christ. At the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Great is your reward in heaven when you get to this point in your character. Great is your reward. That ultimate eternal reward is laid out in Revelation twenty-one, twenty-two. Read it often. Look forward to that great day. So Jesus talks about persecution. And then he calls his disciples to put themselves out there a bit. That's what the next verse is actually about. Let's just really quickly read this now. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus uses this phrase about being salt in a number of places. In Mark 9, some of the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is noted there. And Jesus says that here. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it make make it salty again? Have salt amongst yourselves and be at peace with each other. Here, among other things, it speaks into interpersonal relationships and unity in the kingdom expression. It reminds us of the purifying work of the Spirit and the different people we become and how that difference needs to be evident in the way we conduct ourselves. In Luke, we read of Jesus calling others to count the cost of following him. And in that context, we read this, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be most salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. We often use the Matthew example to speak of mission. 
to a degree that makes sense because it comes immediately after persecution and those two will sort of work hand in hand. If the more missional we get, the more persecution we are going to attract. But I believe saltiness, when taken as a whole idea across the whole Gospels, has a wider appeal than that. That the saltiness we have and the light that we emit comes as a result of all the Beatitudes clearly at work within us. It speaks not just of the saltiness of a missional witnessing action, but the zing that comes when our kingdom lives fire on all cylinders and our demonstration of the kingdom is equal to our announcement of it. We don't just call ourselves Christian and call people to follow Jesus, but we demonstrate what that means to us personally. We actually talk about the kingdom, we talk about a reign of God, but we also demonstrate that in how we live our lives in the way the Beatitudes prescribe. My little salt exercise earlier. How's your tongue going? <laughs> wow. In cooking, I've learned that there is salt and there is salt. One has a zing that the other does not have. In ancient Israel, there was salt and there was stuff with no zing also on the market. Even today, the salt that comes from the Dead Sea is quite sought after. But you have to get the stuff from the top of the stack that evaporated first. That's the good stuff. If you got the stuff at the bottom of the salt pan, it was mingled with gypsum and other minerals and it was nowhere near as salty. And apparently it was actually quite a disappointing substance. So salt could lose its saltiness. Kingdom disciples are to live a life that has zing. It stands out. It is supposed to be something that seasons the world around it. It's something that causes the world to sit up and take notice of what it is we bring to the table. It's more than simply going out and witnessing, but it has everything to do with the way out the whole kingdom way is lived out. Our zing is present when we live out the Beatitudes, when we're poor in spirit, when we mourn our poorly state, when we embrace humility and meekness, when we crave righteousness in all its expressions when we show mercy, when we pursue purity, when we live as peacemakers, no matter how uncomfortable that might be, and when we endure persecution. A life like that might repel some, but there can be no doubt about the light and seasoning it produces around us. If any of that stuff drops off or dissipates, then we start losing our edge. We start losing our zing. We go from that back to that. Maybe even worse. Salt without the zing that came with it was then and still is today an actually disappointing substance that is discarded quite quickly. 
In the same way, people claiming a Christian faith with no regard for the kingdom way that the Beatitudes point to. Sadly, they will be dismissed out of hand by the world around us because we don't have the zing that causes us to stand out. I want us to stop and ponder that. I'll invite the band up now. At this time, I want to pause and ponder that Beatitudes as a whole. And I want you to perhaps prayerfully consider that at this time. How are we doing with that? Have we embraced them in their fullness? Have we taken them all on? Have we gone, I want to pursue those things? Today, persecution... It's going to come. I believe, look, in Australia, our persecution is what? In school, you have a sandwich chucked at you. In work, we get a few workplace jobs because you don't want to go to the pub with the other guys. What is the word? Sometimes, look, there is some real stuff. I get the struggle is real in times. Sometimes... Our family doesn't invite us to certain things because, oh gee, you're Christian, you probably won't be into that. Sometimes our family actually doesn't want to connect with us because of it. My grandfather at one stage actually said, is it Jesus or is it relationship with the rest of the family that matters? Sometimes there is a cost and I'm not trivialising this. In Australia, we don't have it as bad as others, though. I do believe there is a time when it will get worse, though. We can't have it this good all the time. I do believe there's, a, I do believe there's something in the air for that to come. Actually, a persecuted church actually is more often than not a quite productive church. The most persecuted churches in the world are the ones that are growing and seeing people come to faith left, right and centre. It's like something about their persecuted stand that causes other people to sit up and take notice. The salt just pours out of the shaker. In the time that we have now, when we have some persecution, but not to the level that the rest of the world has it at times, I wonder if we can learn to stand in that. If we can learn to become strong in that. To learn to remember eternity in that. Blessed are you when you go through those things, for great is your reward in heaven. Eternity, in comparison to our life, our life is a speck. Life is a vapour, according to Scripture. But eternity, and great is our reward in that setting, wow. Stand strong. And become salty disciples. Let our lives 
stand out. Let our lives season the world around us. Let us demonstrate the kingdom way. Let us announce the kingdom way. And let that season the world around us and let it light where darkness tries to prevail. We live a life out the way Jesus prescribes. It will, by its very nature, season the world around us. You won't even have to try. It'll just happen. Is anything causing you to not be as salty as it should be right now? Maybe the Lord is calling you to action this morning. Calling you to a place of reflection, a course of action. Something to get yourself a bit more salty again. Whatever that may be, let's pause and let Jesus do what he will do in that. Would you bow with me in prayer, church?